0: Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. This broadcast, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Jeff Kadedu, Professor, Department of Urology and Radiology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, Dallas, Texas. Great to have you and thank you very much for uh, donating your time for this uh, important topic today.
1: Thank you, Brad. Uh, I'm doing well and uh, glad to to, uh, speak with you and share my uh, thoughts and experience regarding focal therapy of the kidney. It's been a 20 year experience.
0: Yeah, I, I remember. Uh, I, I remember doing the AUA courses with you, and it was uh, that was a long time ago, and it has come a long way. I we did discuss on another podcast the prostate uh, focal therapy a little bit, so I really wanted to concentrate on kidney focal therapy today. I think what I want to start off with, Jeff, is what are the current AUA guidelines on small renal masses as it relates to focal therapy, and maybe just kind of elaborate on. Uh, how it relates to extirpation and, you know, maybe some 10-year disease-free recurrence rates, et cetera. If you can touch on that, it'd be great.
1: Sure. Kidney tumor ablation, uh, to be clear, I'm going to focus on uh, cryoablation and radiofrequency ablation. There is uh, an effort and research ongoing in microwave ablation now, uh, another heat-based modality, but I'm going con- to give context to all my comments. It revolves around the now 15 to 20 year experience in the cryo and RFA world. Everything else is very immature. And the other modalities like microwave and irreversible electroporation, for example, are not uh, endorsed by the NCCN or AUA guidelines because of immature long term data. The reason cryo and RFA have made it into the guidelines is because these those technologies as employed towards the ablation of kidney tumors was started in the late 1990s and only made it into the guidelines after almost 15 to 20 years of experience. So it is very reasonable to expect that microwave, which is a, a faster or quicker heat-based modality will also be recognized within a, the treatment paradigm. But as it stands today, all my comments will be f- will be relevant. When I say thermal ablation, I'm talking about either freezing it or cooking it with radiofrequency because that's where the long-term data is. You know, the AUA guidelines in 2017 was the first time um, and then the NCCN shortly thereafter, the first time that ablation was endorsed as a treatment uh, alternative uh, or option for patients with small renal masses and again within the context of this discussion small renal mass is anything less than four centimeters in diameter, the clinical stage T1A. There is experience in T1B tumors, but I think that's all still would be investigational and I don't think that should be endorsed in clinical practice on a routine basis. You know the history quickly cryotherapy was first uh, employed towards the kidney tumors in the late 1990s, but that was done laparoscopically because we didn't have percutaneous probes. Interestingly radio frequency, because it's a needle based technology was actually first introduced percutaneously and then later adopted uh, a few years later adopted uh, or adapted, let me say. Uh, laparoscopically. So they evolved in different directions. Cryo started laparoscopic and then evolved towards percutaneous. So the percutaneous data for cryoablation is actually a little bit more immature than the uh, data for radiofrequency ablation percutaneous, which is now the standard of care. As I diverge for a second, in 2021, needle ablation of kidney tumors thermal ablation of kidney tumors is primarily if not only done percutaneously nowadays i i don't see a reason to employ an ablation technology per, uh, laparoscopically in in this age if one is going to do something laparoscopically and if one is likely going to employ the robot to do it Uh, my career has evolved and I think the clinical practice is around the country, United States and the world has evolved where laparoscopic ablation has fallen out of favor when we are enabled by the robot to resect most small renal masses. If we're going to expose the mass laparoscopic robotically, we are going to cut it out. So I don't see much role for laparoscopic, but I do see percutaneous ablation being very competitive, alternative to surgery for these small renal masses. So as I diverge there a little bit, coming back to your first question, where we are in terms of the guidelines and where we are in terms of how these uh, cryo and RFA are employed in treatment. One, it's primarily done percutaneously. And two, uh, then what is the ideal tumor? one would say. The literature as we developed, the, so the conclusion from the uh, AUA guidelines, and I was actually, uh, I think the new surveillance guidelines of renal masses for the AUA is gonna be coming out, endorsed, as NCCN as well, endorsed the concept that tumor ablation should be, is a reasonable alternative to surgery when the renal mass is less than three centimeters. And that's an important distinction in the evolution of these thermal ablations as it stands today. It may be that microwave can do more than three centimeters. Certainly, we know cryo can probably do more than three centimeters, but the efficacy of all the current literature diminishes after three centimeters. And so, when we say small renal mass in the context of ablation, we're thinking three centimeters or less. When we say small renal mass in the context of general urologic practice, we're always thinking four centimeters. So there's a discordance there and um, maybe something that will be revised in terms of of T staging, TNM staging in the future, because the modalities differ within the same T stage. But be as it may, three centimeters or less, if I see a patient today in 2021, given the experience of the last 20 years, if it's less than three centimeters, I routinely, automatically The patient should be discussed, have a discussion that surgery is not the only option, that thermal ablation is a alternative with good, and we can talk about that next, but very good long-term efficacy. And so now 3.3 centimeters, 3.4 centimeters, uh, no, I can't stay, stay here on this podcast that I would endorse ablation routinely for those patients. Those patients can be selectively chosen perhaps for an ablation when they're not healthy, they have comorbidities, uh, prior surgery, et cetera. But under three centimeters, I definitely would consider, uh, I always routinely offer, I, uh, now, uh, thermal ablation. I do th- use the analogy of prostate cancer that when you see a patient with prostate cancer, you cannot just offer them surgery, you have to offer them and discuss with them radiation. Why? Because radiation has been around for 30 years and has known efficacy. In the kidney world, when you see a patient with a three centimeter or less tumor and you're gonna offer them treatment, of course there's active surveillance, but if you're gonna offer them treatment under three centimeters percutaneous ablation has to be in the discussion as as a treatment option. Um, So that is the cohort of patients that you want to treat or offer ablation to. I think
0: we all do this. We all talk about thermal ablation, and then we kind of talk about uh, heat versus cold and such. How do you decide? Are are there tumor characteristics, patient characteristics? Uh, How do you decide between heating versus freezing?
1: Good question. And I think the literature is very, uh, I think the literature to me is very clear. If, and you look at it in an unbiased approach, which the guidelines have done that there is no difference and that on the average tumor in terms of efficacy, um, there is biases, all these studies are retrospective. So everybody has a bias. I am a heat fan. So I like radio frequency. Someone has done a lot of cryotherapy make their, you know, and so they're going to be a, a freeze fan. But when you do head-to-head comparisons in these non-randomized trials and you look at all the data, it's hard to tease out any particular uh, advantage of one or the other. I think that the success of a thermal ablation is not necessarily driven by the technology for the typical 2.5 centimeter, 2.9, I said under 3. I don't think it's driven by the technology. I think it's driven by patient selection, as you just said. So the exophytic tumors are going to have less and it's less heat sink. The 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 concern whenever I look at a CT or an MRI is what's the heat sink going to be that's going to interfere with my efficacy. So a more peripheral tumor, I don't care if you freeze it or cook it. A more central tumor, no matter what you do, you might not get enough energy deposition to to ablate it. There is concerns about the collecting system, right? So we don't, we. There is literature that suggests that the heat based modalities may be more, um, uh, have a more deleterious effect on the uh, ureter or the collecting system, but. I have seen, referred to me, many patients that have had cryotherapy up against the proximal ureter and the ureter stenosed and, and stricture. And there is literature on that. So no, nothing in the body is going to be completely resistant to either thermal ablation technology. So patient selection, I think, what drives the success. Tumor selection drives a success more than the actual energy. A, a perfect patient, I can get 100% efficacy if I just stick to two centimeter exophytic posterior tumors, and I can publish that and I can convince you that RFA would be the best thing in the world. But that's not, that. so that's where the, the lack of randomized trials, surgical trials, and any anything in urology is, is an issue. But I would say my atter- interpretation of the literature is that anybody who advocates for one versus the other, you have to take that as, The audience with a grain of salt, that one there is inherent, even I have inherent bias towards one or the other. But I think the fair comment to say in the appropriate selected patient, either thermal ablation, whichever machine you have, should be fine. You don't have to go out and buy a new machine. So I guess one one question that has two parts, but related to, to both related to
0: imaging. Are virtually all of these done under CT guidance, or are they done under ultrasound as well? And again, how do you choose or select? How do you follow up these patients? Are they all done with uh, enhanced cross-sectional imaging, such as CT and
1: MRI, uh, and at what time point and for how long? The first question is how do do you employ the treatment? So we do these percutaneously. I am... Of the belief that these should be done with cross-sectional imaging, CT guided. As I just said, the success of the technology in the ablation, I don't think, is necessarily driven by cryo or RF. It's driven by patient selection, tumor selection, and targeting. Um, you can, I've, we have used ultrasound to in, uh, allow us to get the needle, you know, close to the tumor. But I think confirmation of appropriate probe placement, ideal, perfect probe placement is what drives a success. So, in you know, in cryo, it's you know, it, it's in the middle of the tumor. You can't be on the off-center because your ice ball may not get across to the other side. So putting the probe in the right spot drives your success. Same thing with RF. So I like CT guided because it gives me a three-dimensional. Appreciation of the needle um, with you know no respiratory variation, no fat, no, no none of that directly into where the probe is placed. I think success is driven by accuracy. Now there are people doing ultrasound ablation, and kudos to them. It's less expensive for sure, and uh, no radiation, uh, etc. But um, so can you do it that way? Yes, you know you know, it's no different than in the age of robotics, you know, you can still do things, you and I can still do things laparoscopically. So to me, ultrasound is a little bit, you know, less technology driven, but you might have a little bit more dexterity with the robot. Well, you might have a little bit more accuracy in in, in placement of the probe with an axial imaging as opposed to uh, ultrasound imaging. So I think to get optimal uh, success and optimal results, targeting is as important as tumor selection so and then part b uh uh, of your question is how do we do surveillance surveillance uh to is you know per guidelines is endorsed that we should do surveillance with axial imaging with contrast so efficacy is driven by the lack of enhancement and you know in the first decade of ablation we were uncertain if what that meant. Could there be residual cells? Could there uh, be recurrences? And it is pretty clear now, in my you know, my personal experience, published of 20 years of doing ablation, that the lack of enhancement of a, of a treatment zone that is modestly bigger than the original tumor. So the lack of enhancement in that treatment zone correlates with efficacy, and you know success rates that are uh, published in the in the high nineties. So axial imaging is drives it. I don't. I don't think you can look at this with ultrasound. I don't think you can look at this with non contrast. You have to look at it with either MRI or CT um, contrast. And um, we now most people in the guidelines endorsed it. it was somewhere around three to six months for the first CT to confirm uh, that you, to do the confirmation. So to confirm that you actually got it all. Um, and that's to me no different than the confirmatory biopsy per se with active surveillance and prostate. The first CT is not, this; it's, it's to see if you have a technical success. Did you actually get it all? Then the surveillance CTs are annually. And per guidelines, it's annually for five years. Um, as and looking for lack of lack of enhancement lack of regrowth which. If i'm going to just jump into your segue right into your original comment which was you know what is a very long term efficacy and uh, 10 years and what's the potential for recurrences. My feeling uh, and we can we can look at uh, you know you can cite. Uh, in, 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 in articles to to support, you know, almost anything in, in the medicine. But it looks like the reason we when I was in the guidelines and we wrote the guidelines and then the revisions I just hinted to, we say five years, is because both with RF and cryo, when you look at the Kaplan-Meier recurrence rates, they plateau around year four. So it's not a hundred percent success. We know that we can, you know, we can get to the fact that there's local incomplete ablation, and you can get some of these recurrences locally, even though the ablation zone is avascular. That is somewhere in the low 90s for the appropriately selected tumor, you know, 90 to you 92 know, percent, not 99 like it is with surgery. And if you uh, look at the long-term recurrences. And I, we did this with our RFA. We follow these patients for 10 years, but the the curves plateaued at five years. And the same thing with long-term laparoscopic cryo. Remember laparoscopic cryo was done in the late 1990s. So they're pushing 25 years of follow-up. They seem to plateau primarily around five years. There are maybe every series you can see someone at year seven or year eight with a recurrence. but we know that can happen even with surgery. So in terms of guidelines, surveillance, it was once a year for five years. Um, if you have a patient who is pretty young and you're still going to follow them, I think all of us in clinical practice will still do some imaging, maybe not every year for five after 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 five years, but we still do something every two years or every three years. For the lifetime of a patient because they can still have another primary recurrence but it's fair to say i think that recurrences after thermoablation after five years is incredibly uh uncommon um and some sort of less frequent after that off off guideline surveillance makes sense to me but um once a year for five years is is important
0: yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that in my region, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of these uh, mores and values are also somewhat regional around the world. I can never stop uh, doing surveillance for my renal uh, renal cell patients, whether regardless of their treatment, whether they had ablation or, or extirpation, they want to be scanned for life because they're so deathly afraid of recurrences. But yeah, I, I think lastly, uh, Jeff, uh, this has really been very enlightening. I think this is a, a great summary of, of the current status. Uh, based on that, what what is the emerging technology that we might be able to look forward to in the next uh, three to five, and then maybe 10 years and beyond?
1: I would, uh, good question. I think the evolving focal therapy of kidney tumors is, um, Is exciting one in the short shorter term we're going to see in more we are are seeing more and more incorporation of microwave thermal ablation and that is. Probably driven, uh, frankly, mostly by marketing. um, than it is. Uh, by anything else, and the marketing being that a microwave ablation is faster than a radio frequency ablation. Uh, We're talking, you know, overall, maybe 10 minutes faster, but in an hour and a half procedure, 10 minutes, you know, whatever that works out to be, that's, you know, 10% faster, 15% faster. So most of the procedure time is putting the probe in, and getting the patient, right, and then the actual activation of the probe, that period of time is the fastest with microwave, faster than cryo, faster than uh, RF. So we will see data mature with RF, with microwave, and we'll see uh, microwave being incorporated. Of course, as expected with new technologies, it's also more expensive than, than, than RFA, um, but the companies uh, know that. So I think and we'll see, as far as thermal ablations, that. I kind of was uh, enthusiastic for a while about irrever- irreversible electroporation uh, being a voltage-based um, technology, non-thermal, so the heat sink wouldn't be an issue, et cetera, and we might be able to treat better central tumors. Um, we have now published our five-year, actually it's in press, our five-year experience with IRE with small tumors, and it was not optimal uh, at all. Uh, we were Basically, just as a clinical pearl, we were 10% behind radio frequency in a comparison mm-hmm. in the 80s. Now, for a sick old patient with a tumor near the ureter, and I'm um, worried, and you know, maybe a solitary kidney, I don't want to do cryo, I don't want to do RF, I can't operate. I don't know why I'd be not doing surveillance, but I have to do something maybe the select person you can do an IRE on, but it's not going to hit. Um, prime time ire seems to be staying in the space of pancreas uh, for some reason um but then you say what is the other um, what's the other thing in the future the other thing in the future is stereotactic radiotherapy uh, we have our experience here we just sent our protocol trial for uh, is in press as well actually it's submitted And the European Germany particularly has an extensive experience with primary radiotherapy, uh, stereotactic therapy to renal masses. And that data seems to also, in terms of local disease control at five years seems to be comparable to thermal ablation. And that's a non-operative non anesthetic, non painful, uh, modality. So I think we will see that become and part of our armamentarium the you know as we all get older and grayer, we start to realize that before anything though becomes part of a standard and makes it into the guidelines, just like cryo and RF, that's going to take 15 years. But I think in our lifetimes we're going to see patients educated about, and being uh, having stereotactic radiotherapy with local disease control rates with appropriately selected tumors, and this is four centimeters or less, not three centimeters or less. Uh, with radiation, doesn't care if you're two centimeters, three centimeters, or four centimeters. Uh, we're seeing disease control rates that are in the in the nineties as well. Uh, now, very few patients, but uh, very encouraging um, uh, results but also prone, you know, you can't radiate the bowel that's stuck to a tumor. You can't radiate the ureter because i have actually done it and I've already seen anecdotally ureteral stricture. So there will still be a place for surgeons, but I do think the small renal masses have competitive technologies uh, in the future will be even more, it'll be more like uh, like prostate cancer focal therapy. We'll have radiation, we'll have freezing, we'll have IRE, we have RFA or microwave. We'll have all the different technologies.
0: Sounds great, Jeff. Really excited for the future, as always. We really thank you very much for your expertise, and uh, I mean, truly being world renowned in this space that uh, has so much to offer patients um, instead of undergoing surgery, or, you know, uh, robotic surgery or bigger abdominal retroperitoneal surgery. But um, your expertise is noted; and it's uh, it's uh, respected, and we we really want to thank you from from our standpoint.
1: Thank you, it's my pleasure to, uh,
0: to share my thoughts. On behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical, Endourological Society and the Journal of Endourology, again, we'd like to thank uh, Dr. Kadedu from Dallas, Texas, and all those listeners uh, participating in today's podcast. Thank you.